Hello and welcome to The Forge. My name is James and this is the place where I teach verse by verse through the Bible. I am a retired U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant who went on to serve the Lord's Church as an assistant pastor, worship leader, and youth pastor. During my time in these roles, I finished seminary and I hold a Master of Arts in Biblical Studies and a Master of Divinity. I've been involved in ministry in some form for over 25 years, and it is my hope that this podcast will be a blessing to you as I teach from God's Word, the Bible. Forge exists to serve those whom the Holy Spirit is calling into a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This is done through biblical teaching so that individuals understand God's forgiveness, live in its reality, and overcome the wounds caused by bondage to sin. I will always hold to the truth found in scriptures, and a summary of my doctrinal statement is worded perfectly in the five solas of the Reformation. I believe Christians experience gratefulness and renewed purpose as they are encouraged by the words of life, which spring from the Bible. I pray that this podcast plays a role in God's ongoing work in your life. Don't forget to look in the show notes for links to the podcast website where you can leave a donation or leave a voice message with questions. I will be collecting questions for a future Q&A podcast. Also, please leave a review on whatever platform you are using. That and telling others about this podcast are the two biggest things you can do for me. Now grab your Bible and get ready for a verse-by-verse study. May God bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Once again, welcome back to another episode of The Forge. I am your host and Bible teacher, James Reed. We are going to be picking it up in Genesis chapter 12. Again, that is Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the words of the one true and living God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the Terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were 
in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram went into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless both the reading and the hearing of it. But here Abram is to leave his dwelling place. And as we're going to see, he's going to take some folks with him, but he is to leave basically everything he knows and everything he is familiar with. He's to leave it all behind. God promises Abram that a great nation will come from Abram. And this means that he's going to have to have some children. And at this point in their life, Abram and Sarai have no children. The word tells us that she is barren and she's 65 years old. And it's important to note at this time that the name Abram actually means exalted father, exalted father. So imagine that your name is exalted father and you have no children and your wife is 65 now, it is true at this time in human history, people were still living a long life, not nearly like it was pre-flood. Now we see that the lifetime of the average human being 
is shortened uh, tremendously from what it was pre-flood, but they still lived to be older than the average lifespan of what we have today. So here we have this man named Exalted Father, and he has no children. And not only does he have no children, but God says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And exactly what is a nation? The proper definition of a nation is a politically organized body of people under a single ruler or government. And God doesn't just say, I'm going to make a nation out of you, Abram. He says, it's going to be a great nation. And so what exactly is great? Well, great means remarkable, out of the ordinary, in degree, magnitude, or effect. So here's a couple up in years, even by the standards of this time in human history where people were living longer. They're up in years. They have no children. And God tells Abram, the exalted father, that he's going to have a great nation come out of him. And I'd like to also call your attention to a covenant structure that we find here in this passage of Scripture. You see, God sovereignly obligated himself to Abram. But God also gives Abram something to do. And as we move on through Genesis, we're going to see that God's promise to Abram was fulfilled and that Abram had an obedient faith in God's promise. I want to say that again. As we move on through Genesis, we're going to see that God's promise to Abram was fulfilled and that Abram had an obedient faith in God's promise. That is powerful. Think about the promise that God has made to you. Let us be like Abram and have that obedient faith, not in myself, not in those around me, not in other things, but faith in God's promise. This passage of Scripture is very significant because it marks the point in redemptive history where God begins to establish a covenant people for himself. Notice that God is the one who set Abram apart. God is the one who's going to make a great nation called Israel that's going to come from Abram. And the whole story will reach its climax when Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, brings salvation to the world. Now, you might be wondering, why, why did I just make reference to Jesus Christ as the seed of Abraham? Up until this time, I've been calling him the seed of the woman or the son of man. Well, I actually haven't changed. I've just added another title. You see, Jesus is all of those. He is the promised seed of the woman in Genesis chapter 3. He is the promised son of man. He is the second Adam, if you will. Jesus is all of those, but he's also the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3, verse 16 states, Now to Abraham and his seed, 
where the promise is made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. That's what it says in Galatians 3.16. So you see that the seed is Christ. So later in Genesis, we're going to read about Isaac and Jacob. They're the next two patriarchs that come on the scene after Abraham. It is Jacob who also gets a name change. He gets a name change from Jacob to Israel. So who does the name change? God does. So toward the very end of Genesis in chapter 49, we're going to read about Jacob's 12 sons and how they're going to become the foundation for the nation of Israel. And remember, Jacob and Israel are the same person. So I think that now would be a great place to talk about covenants. Covenants. This is a word I've used already. I've used it throughout my podcast. I don't even know how many episodes I may have mentioned it in. But as I was putting this episode together, the thought came to me that perhaps those listening don't really know what a covenant is. So what I'm going to do here is share with you um, some commentary from R.C. Sproul's Reformation Study Bible. And this is what he states. Stay with me. He says, covenants in Scripture are solemn agreements. They are negotiated or unilaterally imposed that bind the parties to each other in permanent, defined relationships with specific promises, claims, and obligations on both sides. When God makes a covenant with his creatures, he alone establishes the terms as his covenant with Noah and every living creature shows in Genesis chapter 9. When Adam and Eve failed to obey the terms of the covenant of works, see Genesis chapter 3, God did not destroy them, but revealed his covenant of grace by promising a Savior. And I have probably talked about that Savior in every single episode. He says God's covenant rests on his promise. As is clear from his covenant with Abraham, he called Abraham to go to the land that God would give him and promised to bless him and all the families of the earth through him. Abraham heeded God's call because he believed God's promise. It was his faith in the promise that was credited to him for righteousness. Read Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and read Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. God's covenant with Israel at Sinai in the form of the ancient Near Eastern treaties, these are covenants imposed unilaterally by a powerful king on a vassal king or a servant people. Although the covenant at Sinai required obedience to God's laws under the threat of his curse, it was a continuation of the covenant of grace. 
So God gave the commandments to a people. Now listen to this. A people that he had already redeemed and claimed. I'll say that again. God gave the commandments to a people that he had already redeemed and already claimed. The gracious promise of God's covenant was further defined through types and shadows of the law given to Moses. The failure of the Israelites to keep his covenant showed the need for a new covenant. And that new covenant would bestow the power to obey. You see, I cannot obey. I would never obey. I would never choose to obey. How is it that I obey God's commands? I obey through my faith in Jesus Christ. I am not perfect, but I take on the nature of the one who is perfect. May we be conformed into his image. May we take on the Holy Spirit power that should indwell every Christian. You see, even when I make mistakes, even when I don't do things like I should, even when I sin, did you know I still stand blameless before God the Father? Because I'm in the new covenant of Jesus Christ, and He alone has given us the power to obey. God's covenant with Israel was preparation for the coming of God himself in the person of his son to fulfill all his promises and to give substance to the shadows cast by the types. Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, offered himself as the true and final sacrifice for sin. He obeyed the law perfectly and as the second Adam. He is the second representative head of the human race. He became the inheritor with those united with him by faith of all the covenant blessings of peace and fellowship with God in his renewed creation. The temporary Old Testament arrangements for imparting those blessings became obsolete when what they anticipated was realized. As Hebrews chapter 7 through 10 explains, through Christ, God inaugurated a better version of his one eternal covenant with sinners, a better covenant with a better promise, based on a better sacrifice offered by a better high priest and a better sanctuary. And this better covenant guarantees a better hope than had ever been made explicit by the former version of the covenant glory with God in a better country that is a heavenly one I encourage you to go read the book of Hebrews especially concentrate on chapters 7 through 10 to understand what I'm talking about here the fulfillment of the old covenant in Christ opens the door of faith to the Gentiles to who the Gentiles Friends, if you're not of Jewish heritage, you are a Gentile. You are a Gentile. Most of the earth today is covered with Gentiles, but guess what? The fulfillment of the old covenant in Christ opens the door of faith 
to the Gentiles. That's you and me. I'm a Gentile. And it's open to Jews too. But the thing is, now we are invited in also. The offspring of Abraham, the community with which the covenant was made, was redefined in Christ. The final and definitive offspring of Abraham. And again, I will take you back to the passage I was just reading a minute ago, Galatians chapter 3. You see, Gentiles and Jews who are united to Christ by faith become Abram's offspring in Christ. While no one outside of Christ can be in a saving covenant relationship with God. You need to drive that home, folks. No one outside Christ can be in a saving covenant relationship with God. No Jews no Muslims, no Buddhists, no Hindu, no make-it-up-as-you-go-along kind of whatever, no spiritual person, no. No one outside of Jesus Christ, no one outside of Christ can be in a saving covenant relationship with God. The goal of God's covenantal dealings is, as it has always been, the gathering and sanctifying of the covenant people from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, according to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, who will one day inhabit the new Jerusalem in a renewed world order, according to Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. Here, the covenant relationship will find its fullest expression. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And toward this goal, God's shaping of world events still moves. You know, friends, I must confess to you, especially over the political environment of the last year, two years or so, I got worried I got a little wound up. I got a little concerned. Can I tell you something? I have decided to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to see my freedoms taken away. I don't want to see Christians persecuted and churches closed down. I don't want to see mask mandates that prevent me from partaking in communion with the saints, participating at the Lord's table. I don't want to see restrictions in social distancing that would prevent me from having folks enter into the waters of baptism. I don't want to see the kind of restrictions that would stop us from having church. But friends, I'm not worried because I know that God is shaping the world events. I know that He is winding this thing up the way He, as the sovereign God of the universe, as King of all, the way He has ordained for things to go. So my trust is in Him. My trust is not in the President. My trust is not in this political party or that political party. My trust is in Jesus Christ, and I know the one who holds tomorrow. So it may get rough for us as true Bible-believing Christians who hold to a biblical worldview and what the Scripture actually says. 
friends, I do believe that there may be some dark days coming for the true believers in America. But I'm not shaken. I'm not worried. I'm not concerned. Why? Because God is shaping the world events. And he is the one who still moves. So the covenant framework embraces the entire economy of God's sovereign grace. Christ's heavenly ministry continues to be that of the mediator of the new covenant, according to Hebrews 12, 24. Salvation is covenant salvation. It's regeneration, justification, adoption, and sanctification. It's all covenant mercies. The election was God's choice of the members of his covenant community, the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper corresponding to and replacing the old covenant rites of circumcision and Passover are covenant ordinances. God's law is covenant law, and keeping it is the truest expression of gratitude for covenant grace and loyalty to our covenant God. Covenanting with God in response to his covenanting with us should be a regular devotional exercise for all believers, both in private and in the Lord's table. An understanding of the covenant of grace guides us through and helps us to appreciate all the wonders of God's redeeming love. I know that was a very large quote that I just read, and I also added some of my own commentary into that as well. I will be sure and put the full quote in the show notes so that you can study it on your own time and look up the scripture references that I give there. I share it with you at this point so that we all understand that our God is a covenant God and he is a covenant keeping God. We relate to him through the new covenant of Christ. It is in Christ that we live, we move, we breathe, we have our being. It is in Christ that we obey. So before we move on, I want to take a look at the phrase beginning in verse 3 where it says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I want you to notice a switch there from plural to singular. Those who bless Abram is a plural part of the phrase, but him, which is singular, who curses Abram will be cursed. These two words translated as curse could be translated slightly differently, causing the phrase to read like this. I will disdain the one who dishonors you. In fact, in the English Standard Version, it reads, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So what does this mean? It means that God will take care of anyone who dares to dishonor Abram. And of course, the ultimate way of dishonoring Abram is to dishonor his seed, Jesus Christ. Note that the Lord appeared to Abram. Again, we see the all caps spelling of the word Lord, depending on what kind of Bible you have. 
this is where the editors wanted to indicate that the Hebrew word here is Y-H-W-H or Yahweh. Does anybody remember what we call this, where the Lord appears in the Old Testament? That's right. We call it a theophany. Now, remember, when we see a passage stating that God appears in the flesh in the Old Testament, it is God the Son. It is God in human form. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. It's the eternal Son taking on human form. Again, we have more support for the Trinity found within the pages of the Scriptures. As we look at Abraham's journey, you may want to find a map for yourself, and you can probably find something about it on the web. Ur was northwest of the Persian Gulf, as we would recognize it today. And it is most likely that Abram, or Abraham, traveled along the Euphrates River in a northwesterly direction toward Haran. It's actually Abram's father, Terah, who travels with him to Haran, and that's where Terah dies. And Abram now travels in a somewhat southwestern direction toward Canaan. And this would be the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. He goes to a city known as Shechem in the land of Canaan. And the Bible tells us that the Canaanites were in the land. These are the descendants of who? Canaan. Canaan, Ham's son, Noah's grandson. And remember this portion of scripture because guess who Israel finds in the land many years later? That's right, the Canaanites. It is in this place where God makes yet another promise to Abram. He says, I will give this land to your descendants. And there's something very interesting here about the word descendants. In Hebrew, it is a singular noun. While the New King James Version and the New American Standard Bible translate the word as descendants, the English Standard Version translate this word as offspring in an attempt to keep it singular. So why would God promise Abram that his singular offspring would be given this land? Again, I would take you back to Galatians chapter 3. And this refers to Jesus Christ as the single one to inherit the land. And Paul, who wrote Galatians, he goes on in Galatians 3 to explain that anyone who receives Christ becomes what? A son of God through faith in Jesus. Paul goes so far as to say that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. Even a Gentile like me becomes a seed of Abraham through my faith in Christ. So now keep in mind that Abram has no children at this time, yet God has just promised him, I'm going to give you this land, or this land is going to go to your offspring. We read here that Abram set up his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Remember, even though we're in chapter 12 now, there are things which appear for the very first time in Genesis. Here's one of those occasions. We see this place called Bethel, and remember that 
The two letters E and L, or L at the end of a word, indicates something about God. This word literally means house of God, Bethel. Abram continues on around the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and he heads toward Egypt. Altogether, from Ur, using the route that we believe that Abram likely took, it would be about 1,500 miles. For those who are familiar with the story of Exodus, you may find some things interesting here because we're going to talk about Abram's travels into and out of Egypt. And before we get into it, I just kind of want to give you this outline and I want to show you some things that are parallel in the account of what happened to Israel as a nation, as well as what happens to Abram as an individual. In both cases... God sent a famine. The Egyptians afflicted them or took ownership of them. God plagues the Egyptians. The Egyptians release them, meaning Abram in one case and Israel in the other case, with great wealth. So they let them go and they give them things on the way out the door. They both go back into the wilderness, both Abram and the nation of Israel. And they both finally arrive back in the land where they worship the one true and living God. So as we read this passage of scripture, if you remember what we were reading there in the 12th chapter, just to summarize it, Abram fears for his own life. And he comes up with this idea to say that his wife Sarai could tell the Egyptians that she's really his sister and not his wife. And it seems like this plot was pre-planned. So here we have this man of promise who has just seen the Lord. He's had promises made to him by the Lord. He worships the Lord. And this is what it means in the scriptures when it says that he was calling on the name of the Lord. But apparently he does not trust the Lord enough to protect his wife, Sarai. So where else is this great nation going to come from if it doesn't come from her, I mean, you got to have a wife. Doesn't the same God of promise who promised all these things have the power to protect his people? But how often are we just like this, dear Christians? How often have we been in this relationship with God, the God of the universe, but we attempt to take care of things in our own strength? We do our own planning. We've got our own schemes, and dare I say, we have our own lies. We're going to work it out. We call ourselves Christians, and we don't rely on the God of Abraham. So in verses 15 through 20, we find Abram travels to Egypt, where he goes through with a lie to Pharaoh. He lies to Pharaoh about his wife, Sarai. Abram tells Pharaoh that Sarai is his sister, and Pharaoh then orders her into his harem to eventually be married to her. There's a number of things that I want you to note here. Number one, Pharaoh probably had every intention to marry her. He intended to marry her. Ladies, your boyfriend may have every intention to marry you. He probably doesn't, but let's just say that he does have every intention to marry you. But that's not the same thing as actually being married. You need to think about what I'm saying here. Men, your girlfriend may have every intention to marry you. 
But that's not the same thing as actually being married. See, there may be something coming your way and your boyfriend or your girlfriend can't see it because we don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what the next five minutes hold. I don't know what the very next second could hold. Just as Pharaoh could not see what was coming to prevent his marriage to Sarai. See, you don't know the future, and you don't know the future that God has for you. So what am I saying? I'm saying don't cross the line. One of the things about crossing the line and entering into sexual sin, it's not just a sin that you do. You bring somebody with you when you do it. And friends, the end of that is never pleasant. Never pleasant. Listen, do things God's way. If you want to get married, go ahead and get married. Listen, if you love her, if she loves you, and y'all are willing to cross certain lines that you know you should not cross, especially if you're calling yourselves Christians, go ahead and get married. Go ahead and get married. God blesses marriage, and the marriage bed is undefiled, the, the Bible tells us. So don't be messing around because you don't know what tomorrow might hold. And wouldn't that be a terrible thing if you cross lines and you dearly love this person and tomorrow something happens unforeseen to you and you end up not getting married. But you've already crossed lines that you shouldn't cross. Look at this. Since Abraham forsakes the promise already made to him and does not protect his wife, God steps in and curses Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh has got enough sense to realize that Sarai is not his for the taking. So if you're not married, listen, he or she does not belong to you. If they've been converted to Christ, who do they belong to? They belong to him. So listen, that's not your hand to hold. Those are not your lips to kiss. Not until you get married. Read 2 Samuel chapter 11, chapter 12. (laughs) See what happens to King David when he took what was not his to take. You know, and I just tell folks this. Remember this. If it's not yours, don't touch it. And I'll just ask you this. I'm going to leave it here. Are you willing to violate God? Are you willing to violate one of his children? Don't break the rules. God put those rules in place because he loves us. He loves you, and he loves that person, that other person that you're so interested in. And if God has put you two together, let God do it his way. His way is perfect every time, every time, every time it's perfect. So with that, I hope this is encouraging to you. I hope that you have learned some things here. I hope that you apply God's word to your daily living. There are lessons for us even here in the book of Genesis. Until the next episode, God bless you.
Thank you again for listening to the Forge podcast. And don't forget to leave a review with comments. Let me hear from you. Leave a voice message through the link. I hope and pray that you find ways to apply the truths of God's word in daily living. Remember, dear Christian, you are forgiven. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith. May you grow in Christ in the study of the Bible and truly overcome wounds that were caused by sinful choices and actions of the past. I also pray that you are always reforming, seeking to glorify God in all that you say and do. Remember to be grateful to God for what he is working out not only in you but in all his creation as well. And lastly, be encouraged. Encouraged to serve God and others as you grow in him. <laughs>